everybody, welcome to the 50th episode of our news podcast. This is another two-week. This is going from June 25th to July 8th. I uh, hope everybody enjoyed the holiday weekend. I was out of town for the 4th of July, which is why this is a two-week. Uh, basically, I didn't want to release a podcast that was only going to cover like three or four days of the week because, again, I was out of town over the weekend, so I figured I'd just turn this into a two-week. It's not going to be a regular thing, but just for this one um, instance, that's that's what's going on here. So this podcast, along with all of our other podcasts, are part of Northern Provisions LLC. Also check out the Lethal Minds Journal, a veteran and active duty publication focusing on foreign and military affairs art and culture. Take a look at the journal's bulletin from the Borderlands. That's a bi-weekly foreign affairs publication from multiple talented intelligence analysts and independent journalists. Head over to lethalmindsjournal.substack.com or Instagram at lethal.minds.journal to see more. Also, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash analyze educate, where you can buy us a coffee at ko-fi.com slash analyze educate. We'll head into the news. Okay, starting it off with the South Caucasus, the Azerbaijani blockade of the Lachkan Corridor is still going on. The Lachkan Corridor, of course, connects Armenia with uh, Artsakh, that is the internationally unrecognized ethnic Armenian state, I guess you could say, in Nagorno Karabakh. And that blockade has been going on for seven months. I know we've talked about it numerous times here on the podcast, so I don't think I really need to delve into it more. Just an update that it is still ongoing and probably will be for quite some time. Moving on to Russia, the Moscow Times and multiple Russian military bloggers have reported via unnamed sources that General Sergei Sorbikin has been taken into custody in connection with the Wagner mutiny that happened a couple weeks ago. Sorvikin formally commanded all Russian forces in Ukraine. That's why his name may sound familiar. He did that for a portion of last year, and he currently commands the Russian Aerospace Forces, otherwise known as the VKS. Prior to this, a story broke that claimed that at least one high-level Russian general had advanced knowledge of Yevgeny Prigozhin's plot and helped Wagner plan that operation that was coming from U.S. intelligence sources. U.S. intelligence agencies believe that General Sirvikin may have been that specific general that had knowledge beforehand of the plot. During the mutiny, Sirvikin made a video calling for Prigozhin to stand down. He has not been publicly seen since that video, and even his family claims that they haven't seen him or his security detail in quite some time. Rob Lee, who is a Russian analyst, points out that assuming these claims are true, his arrest may be temporary as the investigation into the events continues. Sir Vegan was arrested after the 1991 August coup attempt as well. And during that coup attempt, he was a captain in the Russian ground forces. He led the 1st Battalion, 15th Guards Motorized Rifle Regiment to the Garden Ring in Moscow, where his troops killed three anti-coup protesters. He was released after seven months and had his charges dropped after it was determined that he was following orders during the coup attempt. 
Surovikin is thought to be one of the more competent and respected Russian generals with prior experience in Afghanistan, Tajikistan, Chechnya, and Syria. Yevgeny Prigozhin, the leader of the Wagner Group, has generally had good things to say about him and the working relationship they had as the Wagner Group assaulted Bakhmut earlier in the year. And some other news in regards to that coup, a camp is being built in Belarus to house 8,000 Wagner fighters. It is expected that they will be used to train the Belarusian military. Despite this, nobody from Wagner has actually arrived at the camp, according to the government. Additionally, Prigozhin is currently in St. Petersburg, Russia, despite the agreement between him and the Russian government dictating that he leaves to Belarus in exile. So we'll see what happens with that. At this time, it still doesn't appear that there's been any major changes in the Ministry of Defense, uh, you know, despite basically Prigozhin's motivations for launching this mutiny. Uh, Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu and Chief of the General Staff Larry Gerasimov retain their positions as far as we can tell. So, uh, yeah, this deal that's happened between Prigozhin and the government really appears to have solved none of the major issues that caused Prigozhin to launch this mutiny in the first place. So it'll be interesting to see if uh, the situation just kind of dies from here or if tensions continue to remain where they were uh, around the time of the mutiny. In an address the Monday after the mutiny, Putin said that the organizer of the mutiny will be punished Given the terms of the deal, again, that I mentioned before, stating that those who participated would not be charged, it will be interesting to see if Wagner's commanders are punished at all. At this time, it doesn't appear that they have been. We'll see if that changes. Russian journalist Dmitry Nizovtsev, working for the Telegram channel Serena, said that he called a Wagner Group recruiter to see how to go about joining the private military company in the aftermath of that mutiny a couple weeks ago. The recruiter told him to send a message to him on WhatsApp with his name and age. The recruiter would send him relevant information on WhatsApp, confirming that the group is indeed still recruiting. He also said that Wagner would reimburse him for his travel costs with his first paycheck. Uh, Nizaltsev asked if he would have to travel to Belarus to join Wagner, and the recruiter says that they are all still operating out of their main base in Krasnodar Krai in Russia and not to believe everything that he hears on the TV. If you guys want to see a clip of that phone call, you could head over to my Instagram. I believe I have it on Twitter as well. It's like a minute and a half. Moving on to Ukraine, on July 7th, the U.S. announced a new military aid package worth $800 million to Ukraine. In that package includes cluster munitions, which we'll talk about in a little bit, 32 Bradley infantry fighting vehicles, 32 striker armored personnel carriers, 31 155 millimeter towed howitzers, Ammunition for the Patriot System, Ammo for HIMARS, AIM-7 anti-air missiles, Stinger surface-to-air missiles, Javelin anti-tank missiles, also 105 and 155 millimeter artillery cells, which are much needed, Penguin unmanned aerial systems, demining equipment and spare parts, small arms and 28 million rounds of ammunition for them, 27 tactical vehicles, and... 10 vehicles for towing and transporting equipment. Moving on to the cluster munitions, of course, a lot of attention has been paid to those that are being sent to Ukraine. For those that don't know, cluster munitions are 
bombs that while in the air will drop tons of small bomblets that explode when they hit the surface. Cluster munitions have been banned by over 100 countries, including many NATO members. However, the U.S. has not signed on to that agreement, nor has Russia or Ukraine. In fact, both of those countries have been using Soviet-era cluster munitions throughout the invasion, both countries. The munitions have been so heavily scrutinized because of the dud rate of these smaller bomblets, meaning the rate to which the smaller bomblets do not explode on impact. Some bomblets fail to detonate on impact, which means that live unexploded munitions can be left scattered over the target area for years or even decades. This has led to the deaths of thousands of civilians all over the world during or in the aftermath of wars. Dud rates vary among specific munition types. For example, dud rates for the munitions that Russia has been using are generally around 30 to 40 percent, which is a lot for the U.S.-made dual-purpose improved conventional munitions, otherwise known as DPICMs, which Ukraine will receive. The official dud rate, according to the Department of Defense, is around 2%. However, this official dud rate at 2% is being disputed by a lot of people. This includes John Ismay, who is a reporter with the New York Times. He's also a Navy Explosive Ordnance Disposal veteran, so he knows what he's talking about. According to him, the dud rate in real-world conditions is about 14 to 20%, which is a lot. The real-world conditions include areas with water, sand, mud, soft ground, or vegetation, which causes a higher dud rate, as does the angle of impact. Additionally, trees, shrubbery, and fences can cause munitions not to detonate as well. The 2% rate that was given by the DOD is from testing at the Yuma Proving Ground in Arizona, which has optimal conditions for these munitions in the hard-packed ground desert. Ukrainian territory will not facilitate these optimal conditions. Ukraine will receive DPICMs in the form of M864 105mm artillery shells, which hold 72 bomblets each at a dud rate of 2%, one and a half in every 72 will not detonate on impact at a rate of 14%, which is more realistic. 10 in every 72 will not detonate on impact. Ukraine will be receiving thousands of these shells in order to deliver these to Ukraine. President Biden will have to bypass a law that prohibits the transfer of cluster bombs with a dud rate of over 1% to another nation. Russian officials have been making noise over comments by then White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki, who, when responding to a question from reporters, said that Russia's use of cluster munitions in the war may constitute war crimes. That comment was made a few days after the invasion began. The U.S. government has been sure to repeat that Ukraine will be using these bombs to clear Russian lines of defense during their counteroffensive, as opposed to Russian forces who have been documented using cluster munitions in civilian areas many times. Additionally, Ukraine has officially said that these bombs will only be used within the internationally recognized borders of Ukraine, not in Russia proper. So far, the Spanish and UK governments have come out against the decision by the US. Norway has not condemned the move, saying that the US and Ukraine are not signatories to the ban on cluster munitions, but did reaffirm that Norway will not be giving Ukraine said munitions because they are a signatory. NATO has refused to condemn the decision, saying that it is the choice of individual countries as to which 
equipment and munitions they choose to supply Ukraine with. Moving on to the Indo-Pacific region, we're looking at China. Last week, U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen met with Chinese officials, including Premier Li Kang, Sinotok, who's of course our Asia-Pacific desk chief for the Bulletin from the Borderlands, told me that Chinese officials would treat Secretary Yellen a lot differently than they treated Secretary of State Antony Blinken during his visit to Beijing in June. Unsurprisingly, it seems like he was right. China wants investment. They do not want generic rhetoric about diplomacy. During her visit, Yellen urged China to work with the U.S. on climate initiatives, including the U.S.-funded Green Climate Fund. China is by far the world's worst polluter, and they canceled climate talks with the U.S. last year. After then, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi took a trip to Taiwan, which greatly angered Beijing. China also says that it is up to the U.S. and the EU to shell out the most money for climate initiatives, as they have historically been the world's top polluters. The main purpose of this trip was to improve relations between the two countries. Blinken's trip last month failed to achieve that, and right after, President Biden publicly called President Xi Jinping a dictator. In an episode that should release later this week, probably midweek, me and Sinotalk discuss Blinken's trip and why the Chinese prefer to visit from Yellen instead, so be on the lookout for that. Moving on to Central Asia in the Middle East, looking at Israel and Palestine. From July 2nd to the 5th, Israeli forces launched a large ground incursion into the Palestinian city of Jenin in the West Bank. This was the largest ground operation in the West Bank since the Second Intifada from 2000 to 2005. Named Operation Home and Garden by the Israeli Defense Forces, the goal was to target militants in the Janine refugee camp. That camp was established in 1953 for Palestinian refugees that fled or were forced from their homes by Israeli armed groups during the 1948 Palestine War. This assault was prompted by multiple clashes between Israeli and Palestinian settlers and a heightened level of Palestinian terrorist attacks against Israeli citizens and military personnel. The operation began with drone strikes on alleged militant infrastructure and was followed by 2,000 ground troops entering the city. In total, 12 Palestinians were killed and over 100 were wounded. At least eight of those killed were claimed by Palestinian Islamic Jihad as their members. There is disagreement over the other four, with the Palestinian Authority claiming they were civilians, while the IDF claims that it harmed no civilians in its operation. The 12 dead range in age from 16 to 23. Additionally, on the Israeli side, one Israeli soldier was killed. That was Sergeant Major David Yehuda Yitzhak of Unit 621, which is a special operations unit. During the operation, hundreds of firearms and explosives were captured and 11 IEDs were disarmed. In response to the operation, on the 4th, a Palestinian man conducted a car ramming and stabbing attack, injuring nine Israelis in Tel Aviv. And the next day, on the 5th, a Palestinian man opened fire on a police vehicle in Mount Gerizim. No one was hurt in that attack, though. In a separate attack, an Israeli soldier was killed by a Palestinian gunman in the settlement of Kedemim. That settlement is in the northern portion of the West Bank, and it is considered to be illegal under international law as per the 4th Geneva Convention. The soldier that was killed was Staff Sergeant Shiloh Youssef Amir of the Gabadi Reconnaissance Battalion. 
Moving on to Iran, Atheon News reports that Iran has begun to mass-produce anti-tank guided missiles similar to the U.S.-made Javelin FGM-148. They are able to do this after reverse engineering Javelin systems that were captured from Ukrainian forces by Russians during the invasion. Ukraine has been given a plethora of Javelins to defeat Russian tanks during the invasion, and this report comes months after claims by U.S. defense sources that Russia was flying captured U.S.-made equipment to Iran for them to reverse engineer. This was reportedly one of the ways that Russia pays for Iranian drones that they have used extensively in the invasion. In recent decades, Iran had already reverse-engineered tow anti-tank missiles and U.S. drones as well. We'll take a quick break and we'll be right back. Okay, we're back with Africa taking a look at Sudan. Fighting between the Sudanese Armed Forces and the Rapid Support Forces continued this week. Multiple districts in the capital of Khartoum are without running water and electricity. The small number of healthcare facilities that are still functioning suffer from a lack of fuel to run their generators. The war has so far forced 2.5 million people from their homes. Witnesses also continue to report to the UN regarding summary executions carried out by RSF forces, particularly against ethnic minorities. On June 26, the RSF claimed to have captured the headquarters of the police central reserve forces in Khartoum. They also say that they captured 75 armored personnel carriers, 27 tanks, and 160 pickup trucks. The armed forces dispute that claim, which, if true, would give the RSF an advantage in the fight for the capital city. The fight for the area around the police headquarters killed at least 14 civilians, among others. Both sides claim that they killed or captured hundreds of each other's fighters. Who knows how accurate those claims actually are. Also, on the same day, the Sudan People's Liberation Movement North again attacked positions of the Sudanese Armed Forces in the Blue Nile State near the border with Ethiopia. This is at least the second time they have broken a 2020 ceasefire deal with the government. On the 27th and 28th, both sides announced a ceasefire to mark the celebration of the Islamic holiday, Eid al-Adha. However, heavy fighting continued in Khartoum regardless. On the 29th, the International Red Cross announced that it had secured the release of 125 soldiers from RSF custody. On July 1st, the Sudanese Doctors' Union accused the RSF of raiding the Shuhada Hospital and killing a staff member. The RSF denies that claim. And on the 2nd, the RSF shot down a Sudanese Air Force MiG-29 fighter jet over Khartoum. The military has so far had 18 airplanes shot down and 6 helicopters shot down since the fighting began on April 15th. Actually, let me correct that. That is 18 planes and 6 helicopters destroyed and not necessarily all shot down. Moving on to the Americas, we got a presidential race update. House Representative Will Hurd of Texas announced that he is running on the Republican ticket. That makes 16 Republicans running for the primary. Got some poll updates. These are all averages from 538. Biden's approval rating is at 40%, while his disapproval is at 54. Trump's favorability rating is also at 40%. His unfavorability is at 56. 
looking at the Democrat primary, Biden is pulling anywhere from 54 to 57%, while RFK Jr. is anywhere from 14 to 17 And looking at the Republican primary, Trump is pulling at 52%, DeSantis at 23 and former Vice President Mike Pence at 6% in third place. Moving on, four Marines were killed on the I-5 highway in Downey, California, after their Dodge Charger crashed into a bridge abutment two weekends ago. The driver of the vehicle lost control, first causing it to crash into a guardrail and then into the bridge abutment. Those Marines were identified as Staff Sergeant Joshua Leandro Moore Jr., Sergeant Daniel Nichols, Sergeant Jose Martinez, and Corporal Rodrigo Zermeno Gomez. Two of the Marines were assigned to Combat Logistics Regiment 1, one was assigned to the 15th Marine Expeditionary Unit, and one Marine was assigned to Combat Logistics Battalion 5. I missed this on the last episode, but in accordance with the COVID-19 Origin Act of 2023, the Director of National Intelligence Office declassified and released a report into the origins of COVID-19 and the Wuhan Institute of Virology. As noted, the report does not address two of the most likely pandemic origin theories, and it does not explore biofacilities outside of the WIV. The Wuhan lab has been widely speculated to be where COVID-19 originated from due to the lab's location in the same city where the pandemic began and the types of work being conducted at the lab, such as gain-of-function research for coronaviruses. The report says that a number of scientists at the lab became ill, in the fall of 2019, just before the COVID-19 outbreak was widely reported in Wuhan. Their symptoms were not consistent with those of a cold or allergies, and accompanying symptoms were not generally associated with COVID-19. Also, the report says that the lab staff did not always adhere to safety protocols. The WIV is a BSL-4 lab, which means it has the highest level of security measures in place. After the lab received its BSL-4 accreditation in 2019, it wasn't immediately clear how the Chinese government decided which pathogens warranted more security measures. And the lab itself was undermanned in terms of properly trained personnel. The lab worked with the People's Liberation Army on projects to improve biosecurity in China and its early warning disease capabilities. Most importantly, the DNI says that the lab scientists genetically injured coronaviruses, but there is no evidence at this time that says they worked on a strain that led to the COVID-19 outbreak. But it is noted that U.S. intelligence agencies disagree on the origins of COVID-19, and the CIA and another unnamed agency have not taken a position on the matter whatsoever. The National Intelligence Council and four other unnamed intelligence community agencies believe the outbreak was the result of natural exposure to an animal, while the FBI and the Department of Energy believe the outbreak to originate from a lab-associated incident. The report says that almost all IC agencies believe the virus was not genetically engineered. It does not state which agency detracts from that view, but all agencies conclude that the virus was not created as a bioweapon. The IC is continuing their investigations as to the origins of the virus, whether it be from natural exposure or related to a bio lab. If you want to read the report for yourself, I suggest you doing so. You could easily find it with a Google search, and it's only about 10 pages. Okay, this is another story that I missed. The House of Representatives voted to formally censure California Democrat Representative Adam Schiff. That vote was on a strict party line vote with 213 Republicans in favor and 209 Democrats opposed. 
Schiff was censured because of his role in the Trump-Russia collusion ordeal, which allegations were determined to be false after two separate special counsel investigations. Schiff was the chairman of the House Intel Committee from January 2018 to January 2023. He was accused of abusing his office and launching a, quote, all-out political campaign against a sitting president by Florida Republican Anna Polina Luna, who introduced the censure bill in the House concurrently with the investigation by special counsel Robert Mueller into Trump colluding with Russia. Schiff routinely went on popular nightly news programs and claimed that he had definitive classified evidence of Trump working with the Russian government to influence the 2016 presidential election. Schiff would never expand on these claims even after no evidence was discovered affirming the allegations against Trump. Schiff has been cast as a liar by his Republican colleagues who highlight his position as chairman of the Intel Committee at the time. He was removed from the Intel Committee in 2023 because of his role in the ordeal. The censure does not expel Schiff from office and is really just a formal letter of commendation by the House. Schiff is the 25th representative in U.S. history to be censured, and he says he wears it as a, quote, badge of honor. He is also running to take the seat of California Senator Dianne Feinstein in 2024 as she retires. Moving on, the Department of Justice for the first time ever has charged four Chinese companies and their employees in relation to the production, distribution, and sale of fentanyl. The companies are all chemical manufacturers and are accused of producing and trafficking precursor chemicals that are needed to make fentanyl. Fentanyl is over 50 times more potent than heroin and was responsible for killing an estimated 110,000 Americans last year. It is now the leading cause of death for Americans aged 18 to 49. In the Southern District of New York, Wuhan-based Amerivelle Biotech and three of its employees were charged. Those employees are King Zhao Wang, an executive, Yi Chen, a marketing manager, and Anita Yang, a sales representative. They were charged with fentanyl trafficking and precursor chemical importation and money laundering. Wang and Chen are both Chinese nationals that were living in Fiji at the time, but were expelled from the country on June 8th and arrested by the DEA from there. Yang is still at large. The DOJ claims that Ameriville openly advertised sales of fentanyl online. I'm sorry, the sale of fentanyl precursor chemicals online to Mexico and the U.S. that are used by Mexican drug cartels from there. The company advertises these chemicals as a, quote, Mexico hot sale, guaranteeing 100% stealth shipping and confirming shipments to Culiacan, Mexico, which is home to the Sinaloa cartel. Yang specifically is accused of shipping more than 200 kilograms of chemicals to the U.S. In November of 2022, DEA Confidential Source 1, otherwise known as CS1, messaged Yang that he was making fentanyl and that shipping the chemicals was not safe. Yang replied, quote, I know. During another meeting in March 2023 with CS1 and another source, CS2, Yang and Chen said that they had many customers in Mexico and America that could assist the two agents with fentanyl production. Moving on, in the Eastern District of New York, companies Rangcheng Limited and Anhui Moker New Material Technology Company were charged with conspiracy to distribute fentanyl manufacture of fentanyl and related crimes. Four employees are charged as well. Those are Xu Tong Wang, Shi Fang Rong, Xinhou Zhao, and Yi Gao. The four are accused of customs fraud by mislabeling packages 
as well as distributing controlled substances. A second indictment in the district charged Hefei GSK Trade Company and Hebei Sinaloa Trading Company Limited and a man named Ru Kang Lee with the same offenses as those in the first indictment. The defendants were allegedly aware of the role that their chemicals have in the production of fentanyl and even provided advice to their customers as to how to produce the drug. Moving on, this week, an IRS whistleblower, I'm sorry, a couple weeks ago, an IRS whistleblower came forward with allegations regarding the investigation into Hunter Biden by the U.S. District of Delaware. The supervisory agent, Gary Shapley, was involved in the investigation and claims that he was repeatedly taking steps in the investigation that he says are routine in other cases. This comes after a plea deal between Biden and U.S. Attorney for Delaware, David Weiss, was announced which was characterized by many elected Republicans as a, quote, sweetheart deal. He was charged with two misdemeanor tax charges and felony gun possession. You could listen to AEP 21 to get the details regarding Weiss's investigation and the plea deal. Shapley believes that additional charges could have been brought against Hunter that are not included in the plea deal. In relation to the tax charges, Shapley told NBC News that, quote, based on my experience, if this was a small business owner or any other non-connected individual they would have been charged with felony accounts. Shapley said that multiple expenses were falsely claimed as business expenses by Hunter to include, quote, prostitutes, sex club memberships, travel for the prostitutes, hotel rooms for purported drug dealers, and no-show employees. He also claimed that prior to the repayment of the taxes in 2021, Biden owed the IRS more than $2 million in back taxes. U.S. Attorney Weiss's office has declined to comment on the claims made by Shapley. Shapley also answered questions by members of Congress last week, I'm sorry, a couple weeks ago, and told them that Weiss was not given the authority to decide whether to charge Hunter Biden or not, or what charges could be brought. He says that he provided lawmakers with an email he wrote after a meeting with Weiss on October 7th, 2022, where Weiss stated that he is not the deciding person on whether or not charges can be filed. This contradicts public statements made by both Wise and Attorney General Merrick Garland that the former had complete authority to make those allegations. Shapley also claimed to members of Congress that he was prevented from pursuing leads in the case that could have implicated President Joe Biden. This includes a 2017 email that was uncovered from Hunter Biden's laptop that addressed two of his former business partners by James Gillier, another former business partner. That email outlines expectations regarding a deal with a Chinese energy company. One line in particular in that email went as follows, quote, 10 held by H for the big guy, question mark. The two persons that the email was addressed to told CBS News that the line was shorthand for 10% held by Hunter Biden for Joe. Shapley says that any efforts to investigate the contents of the email were blocked by a senior prosecutor in Weiss's office. It should be noted that Weiss's investigation began in 2018 under the Trump administration, and some of those allegations made by Shapley, if true, happened during the Trump administration as well. Chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, Jason Smith, heard similar claims from another unnamed IRS whistleblower. Testimony from the two IRS agents also claims that Weiss tried to bring charges against Hunter in Washington, D.C. in 2022, but was denied. After that, he reportedly tried to bring charges in California, but was denied again. They also say that he sought special counsel status, but was denied of that as well. The last major allegation made by Shapley regarded a WhatsApp message that was allegedly uncovered during the investigation. According to that allegation, 
The message is from Hunter and was sent by a man named Henry Zhao, the CEO of Harvest Investment Fund. The WhatsApp message reportedly reads, quote, I am sitting here with my father and we would like to understand why the commitment made has not been fulfilled. Tell the director that I would like to resolve this now before it gets out of hand and now meets tonight. And Z, if I get a call from anyone involved in this other than you, Jang, or the chairman, I will make certain that between the man sitting next to me and every person that he knows, and my ability to forever hold a grudge that you will regret not following my direction. I am sitting here waiting for the call with my father. If true, this would contradict multiple claims by President Biden that he had never spoken to Hunter about his foreign business dealing. The president has denied the allegations regarding the WhatsApp message and all allegations of his involvement in his son's business dealings. The White House press secretary has also refused to comment, referring reporters to the White House counsel. And lastly, the Marine Corps has confirmed the details surrounding a missing teenage girl that was found on Marine Corps Base Camp Pendleton late last month via Chuck Palmer of the 1st Marine Logistics Group. Palmer confirmed that a so far unnamed Marine was taken into custody by NCIS after a 14-year-old girl was found in his barracks room 18 days after her disappearance. That Marine is assigned to Combat Logistics Battalion 5 in Camp Pendleton, and according to the girl's aunt, Cassandra Perez, he allegedly bought the girl. It isn't clear who the Marine allegedly bought the girl from. According to Perez, the girl ran away from home on June 9th in Spring Valley, and she was reported missing on the 13th. There was apparently a delay in a missing persons report because the girl had run away from home prior, according to her grandmother. Perez also claims that the Marine had sex with a minor girl that has not yet been confirmed. She was found in the Marine's barracks room by the barracks duty on June 28th at about 9.15 in the morning, and at 9.30, she was rescued by military police. She has since been returned to her grandmother. That is all I have for you guys. Uh, this took a while getting out. Um, I've had some major technical difficulties the past couple days, but looks like everything's okay right now. So, uh, yeah, thankfully I, I could get this out. I know it's a little bit late, but whatever. I just wanted to get it out uh, at some point, you know. So thank you guys for listening to this podcast. Of course, it means a lot to me. You can find this on your favorite apps, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen, we're there. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Analyze Educate. That's all one word. We're also on threads under the same handle. Also, you can find us on Telegram, Analyze and Educate. Please consider supporting us on Patreon again at patreon.com slash analyze and educate or at ko-fi at ko-fi.com slash analyze educate. Be sure to leave us a five-star rating on the app used to listen to this podcast. And I will see you guys soon.